0: Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word with you, open with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing in our study through this gospel titled, The Message Today, The True Treasure. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to be drawing a that that line in the proverbial sand and um, the recognition that there's a need f- to understand the issue of lordship of mastership of the fact that there's masters in this world and we can't serve all of them as a matter of fact he's going to say you can't serve more than one truly and in our passage this morning the issue is over Uh, wealth, um, or perhaps the idolization of wealth, or you might think of it as materialism and one's love for the things of this world. Have you noticed that uh, we in the West, we really have a love for things in this world? We are consumeristic to the core. Uh, John the Apostle tells us in 1st John 2.15, not John 2.15, but 1 John 2.15. I made an error in my PowerPoint here. And for some reason, my beautiful pen is not working. Hang on one second. Let me see what happens here. Apple. Oh, it's at 0%. That's why. I had it plugged in the whole time. Why is it doesn't love me today? Okay. First John 2.15, notice he says, do not love the world, and in particular, notice what it says right here, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, a love for this world system, and in particular, this American system in which we are operating, which you're seeing dismantled before your very eyes, if you're not paying attention, it is literally being dismantled before our very eyes. I mean, just this week I saw that now if you have bad credit, they're actually going to reward you for bad credit in the purchasing of homes. And if you have good credit, they're going to charge you higher interest so that your monies can go to help those with poorer credit. If that's not a new form of socialism, have we ever seen it? It's our, our world, this world system that we thought we loved, and this is why we don't love world systems. This is why we cannot love world systems. They're like shifting sand. It's ever-changing. The Word of God is never changing. It's always true. But not only the system, but the things in particular. And Why do you think John would say something so rigidly, some, something so black and white regarding our affections of not loving the world or the things of the world? And if anyone loves the world, system, or things, the love of the Father is not in him. Doesn't that seem rather harsh almost? It's very definitive it's very exacting it's it almost um i can almost hear voices saying yeah but yeah but and and you know cuz really and we start trying to find ways of justification within our own minds and with our own hearts that that we're really we do love god more than everything but I do, you know, he does say that that these other things are going to be added to us. We're probably going to get there next week in verse 33, right? This idea that all these other things, and so can't we kind of love both? Can't we kind of have a foot in both worlds? But John states this very rigidly, very black and white regarding our affections, and it's probably because John was present at the preaching of Jesus as we're going through this Sermon on the Mount here that we're currently studying. And it was John who heard Jesus say something as rigid as that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve God and money. And as a result of hearing Jesus, his master, teach him that you can't serve God and money, he says things like, if you love the world or things, wealthy things, the love of the Father is not in you. John's making Almost, if you will, commentary and thus some application on the teaching that he no doubt heard Jesus himself teach. You cannot serve God and wealth. And where Jesus makes this idea of wealth, it's it's, it's more of like this idea of the hoarding of wealth. I mentioned this, the idolization of wealth. We can't make that out to be our master. But people, as you know, are prone and willing to serve almost anything that provides them instant gratification and pleasure, which, according to the first commandment, would be idolatry, and which is possibly why John would say regarding anyone who loves this world system and things, the world God's love can't be in them, because you are to have no other gods before the only true and living God. Amen? Amen. And it's at moments like this that we clearly learn that one's salvation, now think about this, one's salvation has a unique way of changing one's affections. And if you haven't noticed it yet, we humans by nature, as I mentioned, are very things oriented. We spend a greater part of our time and energy on the acquisition of wealth for the precise purpose of acquiring and enjoying and protecting material possessions that to some degree provide us with a great deal of pleasure, comfort, and joy. And we in the West are particularly good at this. Have you heard of the American dream? And while that may be crumbling around us as um, different ideology is battering that about, we must be careful not to fall in love with an American dream. We've all heard of those rags-to-riches story, right, that kind of solidifies that idea of this American dream. And if we're not careful, such ambition, such worldly ambition for things can put us under its spell and without even realizing it, we thus become a slave to that master, the master of wealth, the master of monies, of riches, possessions, and we will serve that master willingly, whether we sometimes recognize it or not. And it will take you. It will take you down that long, winding road of your life for a lifetime. And it will always tell you that you're in need of the next great thing. You need more stuff. And it was Jesus who said, you can't serve two masters. It's either God Or wealth in this context. These are the two that he's juxtaposing, one with the other, and it seems that the concept of wealth there, the hoarding up of wealth, the idolization of wealth, the love of the things of the world, this love for materialism, is somewhat of a broad concept that the master over which is the dependency, the servitude towards, the security that we find in wealth as opposed to to God. And again next week when we get to that sermon of uh, that particular verse in his sermon verse 33 he shows us very plainly right he just says what we need to do is we need to seek first his kingdom seek it first all these other things now in the context he's talking about things that you wear clothes etc he He clothes the lilies of the field. He's going to clothe you. The basic necessities of life, God's going to take care of these. They will be added to you as you, as his kids, are seeking first, living under Christ's rule and Christ's kingdom, awaiting his eternal kingdom in the future. We're going to see that next week. And it lets us know something very important. God's not a killjoy. God's not out to to say, no, you can't go and just chase after all these things. I'm a killjoy. What God is saying is that I'm better than all those things. (laughs) I'm the greatest joy. God's saying, not me, just understand. I'm I'm kind of putting myself in the place of God like God was. God God says, I'm the greatest joy you're ever going to have. I'm your greatest good. You wrongly think that these other trifle things are going to be what's satisfying, and you will discover in your life that they are not. You need to taste and see that God is indeed good. And in doing this, Jesus is thereby asserting his lordship over the lives of those who would wish to be his disciples and who would wish to be in his kingdom. This current aspect of his kingdom, which is the rule of Christ over his church and a future earthly kingdom, where he will again fulfill a Davidic covenant and rule from this earth. Now, notice verse 19, where we pick up this morning. Notice how Jesus articulates this, Matthew 6, 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Here in verse 19, it's easy to see that Jesus is giving a prohibition, right? I mean, that's kind of an obvious. Do not store up for yourselves treasures treasures on earth. There's a prohibition to those of us on earth wishing to live under the rule of Christ, under the rule of God. Those of us desiring entrance someday into his heavenly kingdom. He's saying, this is not how my kingdom kids should be living. Storing up, hoarding up, stacking up treasures for yourself on this earth. Stop it. If you're doing it, stop it. If you're not doing it, then just don't do it. This Word imagery, imagery here in this phrase of storing up is um, it's just the idea of, of like piling up of stacking up it's why I've kind of used the word hoarding it's if you ever been into a hoarder's corner a hoarder's house you kind of realize they stack things up they they pile things up they hoard things and the key part in all of this is that it's done in such a way that would cause your heart to turn from trusting in the provision of God. It's a stacking up, a piling up, a hoarding of wealth in such a way that would turn your heart away from trusting in the provider of all good gifts and instead putting your trust in those things that you're hoarding. This understanding seems to be clearly implied by Jesus' words when we get to the end of this in verse 24, again, when he says, you cannot serve God and wealth. So the piling up of treasures as a security, as a sure security for the future, is not something God's kids are to do nor to rely on. Proverbs 10, 15 says, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. In Proverbs 18, 11, it says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. Storing up treasures is the act of making those treasures your fortress or your strong city or like your high wall in which there's security in which you have ultimately placed your trust. That's the idea of storing up your treasures. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Stop it. We may think of the The farmer in Luke chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, it said, This is what he says, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. I mean, is that clearly not a fortress and high wall? Soul, you have laid up many good. You have many goods laid up for many years to come. He is he is finding a solace, a fortress, a high wall in what his wealth has provided for him. And so notice what he says next: take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man's strong city was his wealth. His God is his security through his wealth and life. It's what he looks to to be his provider his comfort to meet all of his needs. In verse 20, though, notice it says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure, there it is, stores up, hoards up, heaps up, stores up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So again, the storing up of treasures as a sure security for one's safe future is not something that we, as God's kids, are to rely on. The hoarding up of wealth is a false hope, a false security. Now, simple question. Let's get practical, right? Will it pay the bills? You got bills to pay? Yeah. It pays the bills, and that's fine. But that's not what this teaching is about. It's not about the acquisition of money and the use of money. It's about the hoarding up of money and allowing it to steal your heart away from your trust in God, of making money your God, of putting your security in your wealth instead of God. It's not in the acquisition of the money and the use of money for good things, for purposes that need to be done in one's life. Again, you can't serve two masters. And the rest of this verse here in verse 19 is going to express the purpose of showing the complete futility of trusting in wealth, and in particular in the way they hoarded or stored wealth in their culture. We see here at the end of verse 19, it says, where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I like the way R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew says this. This is insightful, especially Derek might appreciate this, a banker here. He said, in a culture where banking was embryonic and little used or trusted, treasures were normally kept in goods or hard currency in the home or in a supposedly safe place and were thus liable to physical deterioration or theft. Again, which is obviously where moth and rust destroy and the potential of thieves breaking in and taking, right? Nothing we own is completely safe from destruction or theft. And both highlight the insecurity of one placing their hope and security in their wealth instead of God. Now you may be thinking, Pastor, that was 2,000 years ago. Nobody's hoarding up wealth in rooms these days, in, in, in their closets. Well, Perhaps. If you do, we don't need to know about it, okay? Um, But perhaps some of you have started maybe giving that a stronger consideration after the latest bank collapse that we just witnessed within the past month. Oh, well, the socialist um, in our country came along and they bailed them out, but had they not done that, do you know how many millionaires would have gone to 100 heirs overnight instantly? This was just a month ago in the great United States of America. So if you think perhaps that you can put that trust in now, we've got more modern systems, we can put our, and they're even trying to push for us, what? A digital currency system. Now how safe and secure would that be? A completely digitized currency system where all they have to do is go in and flip a switch and you have no access to anything that was rightfully yours. Can you see the complete futility of placing hope in treasures wherever you may store them, be they in banks or be they under your mattress? Either way, things can disappear very quickly in the twinkling of an eye. Where should one find their security? In the Lord. You can only serve. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to serve the Lord or you're going to serve wealth. Jesus is pulling... Some, some threads from our heart very purposefully here because let's face it, all of us do kind of have a love for wealth. Let's just be honest. If we if we, oh, we don't care about wealth, if we were to act like we don't care about wealth at all and the things that it can bring for us, we're just not being truthful. We do have to mortify our flesh, don't we? We have to put the deeds of our flesh to death. We have to be sensible. We have to learn to be good stewards of what God has given us. Now, make a note here. Jesus is not saying to not work hard, to be industrious, to earn a good wage and make profit. He's not saying that. In Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, we're told to be like the ant who prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. In Proverbs 14, 23, we're told that in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. In Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, we're told that by wisdom a house is built and by understanding it's established and by knowledge the rooms are filled with precious and pleasant riches. And in Proverbs twenty-eight, 19, we're told that he who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. So it's right to work hard, to provide well for our family. It's right to make reasonable plans, financial plans for the future. It's right for parents to leave an inheritance to kids and grandkids. And to earn, to save, and to give. These are all good, wise things to do with what God has called you to be a steward over. Amen? In reality, there's only one time in the New Testament, in the Gospels, a parable, where Jesus is telling a man, perhaps it's not a parable, he's telling a man to go and sell all of his possessions. The rich young ruler, are you familiar? Lord, I've kept all of the commandments. What need I do to have entrance into your kingdom? He said, oh, that's that's great. Congratulations. You've done well, but there's still one thing lacking. Knowing that he was a wealthy man, he said, go sell all all of your possessions, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler went away sad because he was one who was a wealthy person. He had many possessions. And Jesus probably was just wanting to see, are you willing to part with them? He might not have actually said part with them if the young man would have said, I will go do it, Lord. I'm going to go sell all my goods. He might have said, hey, okay, no, you're fine you just now come and follow me because I've got your heart because you can't serve two masters. I knew that you had a master of money and I was calling you to forsake that master because I need to have lordship in your life. I need to be first place in your life. You can't have two masters. You can't serve us both. And so it seems that in that one case, so that doesn't become like a, a paradigm where Jesus then says to all people who want to follow him, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor and come follow me. That would be a poor interpretation and application of that one particular text. And Jesus, in essence, said to that man, you can't serve God in wealth. So when a poor person is hoarding wealth and stingily stores up treasures for themselves, for their security, for, as their high tower, as their strong city, that person's God is their gold. And Jesus is saying that God's kids cannot be those kinds of people. God's kids live under the rule of God and are not to put their hope in wealth, but in God alone. And as such, look at verse 20. Jesus here shows his kingdom kids how to truly value the right commodities. In 620 he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. The deposit of treasury in heaven is a secure deposit. It cannot be destroyed by moth or rust or things. It cannot be stolen, taken away wrongly by thieves. If the digital currency system goes out, those treasures that you store up in heaven cannot be touched. And again, this time, the word imagery here is of storing up treasure in heaven. It's, it's comparing. It's the idea of hoarding, of piling up, of stacking up treasures. But this time, you're, you're living in such a way, and your trust is in, in, in God in such a way that you're doing it in heaven. You're living for kingdom priorities. You're living for God's purposes. You're storing up treasures in heaven. And here, again, is the key part in it all. This is to be done in such a way that would show your heart to having been turned from trusting in worldly possessions to instead be trusting in the one who is the provider of all good gifts, namely God. Our lives are to be lived in a demonstration that he is our strong tower. He is our sole provider. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Give us what? This day our daily bread. Each day, Lord... You're the God who's in heaven, and today we look to you as our provider, our daily bread today. I may have a fridge in the garage that's got an extra gallon of milk and some butter, but Lord, I'm not trusting in that. That fridge, the, the electricity could have shorted in the night. That might be spoiled completely. I need you today, Lord, and you are my provider today. It's just a, it's, it's where your heart is. There your treasure is. That's what Jesus is about to tell us in verse 21. So clearly when your life, interest, and pursuits are those which inevitably store up treasure in heaven, when you make the people of God your people, when you use the spiritual gift that God gives you for the edification of God's people, your people, when you traffic with your people, when you laugh with your people, when you cry with your people, when you support your people, when you give for your people. It shows, it demonstrates, it doesn't have to be said that God is your master. You're storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. and It's on display by the life that you live, the people you hang with, the things you do, the things you don't do. Because that which you truly value becomes that which you store up. And we see here in verse 21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A direct link. John MacArthur in his commentary states this really well. Notice he says, Jesus goes on to point out that a person's most cherished possessions and his deepest motives and desires are inseparable. They will either be both earthly or both be heavenly. It is impossible to have one on earth and the other in heaven. If you need to take a snapshot of that and go think about it, do it. It's it's worthy of contemplation because where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be Also, in other words, each person's priorities will be determined by his valuation of earthly and heavenly benefits. And whatsoever a person values, as evidenced by their deeds, as evidenced by their life, is the revealing of the true orientation of their heart, of that which is of central importance to them personally. And such imperial evidence is always true regardless of what one's lips may be saying. The life never lies, but lips do. A person will do what they love. Where your treasure is, what you love, there your heart will be. The life never lies, lips do. If you want to know the true condition of your heart this morning of what's of central importance to you just make an observation of what you treasure what do you love to do whom do you truly love being with and why what are you reading are you practicing spiritual disciplines as for the express purpose of growing in Christ-likeness or is there a lack thereof and a pursuit of other social media apps that keep you so distracted that you never hardly give that one second thought? The kind of entertainment with which we entertain ourselves is a good indication of the treasures and where our heart is. Arthur Pink in his commentary said it well. He said in Instead of setting our affections upon and spending our strength in the acquirement of the perishing things of time and sense, we should desire and seek our happiness in spiritual and divine objects which are incorruptible and eternal. Always remember verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Word of God tells us to guard our hearts Guard your hearts. Remember Ephesians 6. There are what? Schemes of the devil. to Try to lead your heart astray from following the one true and living God. Now, do I have time? Oh, uh, I have to have time. I'm going to really speed up here so you're going to have to put on your quick listening ears. I'm going to talk a lot faster. you ready? Because this is a one-part piece and I can't make it two. It won't work in verses 22 and 23 Jesus now uses an, another analogy making a comparison and this is this is a enigmatic this is a difficult couple of verses and I'm trying to find the 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 that Occam's razor that just kind of cuts through it and finds the simplest explanation for what we see and I trust and I'm praying and trust that it's the right one but he's going to make an analogy a comparison between your heart verse 21 which shows truly what you treasure, he's going to compare that with the eye, which he now is going to say is like the lamp to the body, to again illustrate what a person's character truly is and that which they truly treasure. Notice verse 21, excuse me, 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay. As mentioned, the eye becomes analogous with the heart, and in that the eye is the lamp of the body, which we see here, uh, through which all light around us comes to us, through the lamp of the body, the eye, and is our only means of vision by which our body is thus directed, Jesus makes the point that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light." Now, to help illumine what Jesus is saying here, we need to explore the meaning of this word clear. If your eye is clear, then the whole body is full of light. Our Greek word here for clear pertains to being motivated by singleness of purpose so as to be open and above board. Single, almost the idea of single-mindedness without guile, sincere, straightforward, without a hidden agenda. That's this word that we have translated here for clear. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. The King James Version translates this word single. The ESV translates it as healthy. And here we see the New American Standard translating this word as clear. And so it seems that what Jesus is saying here is that if a person's eye, or we might understand this just to mean the person's vision, is clear or healthy or single, as in a singleness of purpose, to be open and above board, to be without guile. If a person's eye is that which is sincere, it's straightforward, it's without a hidden agenda. This person's whole body will thus be full of the same kind of light, of that kind of single mindedness, of that kind of Godward purpose, as to be without guile in their motives and actions in how they live their lives. And thus, it seems clear that a person, that such a person like this, would be analogous to the person who's storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. That seems to be the connection that Jesus is making. Here. But conversely, in verse 23, he said, but if your eye's bad, and bad here being the converse of, of our clear here, it's, it would be the opposite, it would be the, what's, uh, the, 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 the antithesis, the, what's converse of that, of being single, healthy, clear, without guile, sincere. So a bad eye being an injured eye, an injured eye is unable to see clearly, thus it's not healthy. A bad eye is one that's incapable of seeing how self-indulgent they truly are. They're incapable of seeing how materialistic they truly are. They're incapable of seeing how greedy they truly are, and thus incapable of seeing how they live in such a way as to demonstrate that wealth, mammon, actually is their master and not God. And so he says of this person, if then the light that is in you is darkness because your eye is bad, it's not clear, It's not single-mindedness. It's not without guile. When your sight is without guile, your whole life will be demonstrated by that. But if it's not, if it's bad, then how great is the darkness? And it seems to be saying that the, the darkness is so great that the distinction between those who have Jesus as their master and those who have money as their master is the distinction of genuine conversion. Such is the problem of unbelief is a darkness that's so dark that one cannot see, and they cannot see because they have a bad eye, and the reason they have a bad eye is because God has not opened their spiritually blind eyes to see clearly, to have no guile, to repent of their sins, of lusting after the things of this world, to repent of chasing after mammon, of money, of wealth, and of hoarding it up thinking that they're going to find their security there. So it seems that this perhaps difficult analogy, difficult to grasp that might be, would seem to be conveying a very utterly and astonishingly simple principle that the way a person lives their life will put on display who their master truly is. Which we see in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll devote it to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You just can't. And in this context, this isn't talking about like masters as in like employers today. Well, I have two part-time jobs, or maybe I have two full-time jobs and I have to serve both masters. So why is it saying you can't serve two masters? I can serve two masters. This is coming from a culture 2000 years ago when the master-slave relationship was such that the master was owned by the slave. The slave didn't have another master down the road, and he tells this master, hey, I can't help you right now. i got to go help this other man. No, this slave belonged to that master, and Jesus is using that as the, the, the cultural context in which this is saying, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one, be devoted to other, or despise. You cannot serve God and wealth. It's impossible. And so Jesus... And his teaching in the sermon here is dealing with obviously a very pertinent issue that affects every single one of us, and it's the issue of money and the management of money, the understanding of stewardship over money or ownership over money. And he says it in such a way as to draw this proverbial line in the sand that's calling us as kids desiring, I call it, keep calling us kingdom kids, what I'm referring about that is that we have a heart's desire to be in the kingdom of heaven. Like when Jesus came, when John the Baptist came, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and people came for a baptism of repentance with John. They knew that the, that the Old Testament Messiah was coming, the long-awaited Messiah was coming, a kingdom was coming. They wanted to be in that kingdom. So I'm, when I refer to us as kingdom kids, I'm saying we are people who are desiring to, to, for a future kingdom to come. We want to be in his kingdom, Amen. We're living under the rule of God now. We're in his kingdom presently now, but there's a future kingdom that's coming. We obviously want to be in both, now and then. Jesus is making a clear distinction. I am your master. If you have a problem with money, you need to put that away. You can't serve both. And now that you're following me and I'm making you a disciple of mine, I've got plans for you that you know not of. I've made it very singular. I've said I want, to make, I want to use your life to fulfill my great commission, Jesus's, not mine, but his. That's how I want to spend your life. And I want you to find within there treasures in which you give your life so that then you store said treasures up in heaven You live for the treasures of heaven. You live for that yet future kingdom. We're living under the rule of God now, and he's blessing us now. But in the New Testament, some of those blessings may look like suffering. See all the apostles. See the martyrs and the blood of the martyrs that have flowed down for the last 2,000 years. And so this morning, church, the admonition that we need to be leaving and thinking about before we leave is where is my heart? What do I treasure? Do I treasure Christ above all things? Again, next week we're going to get there. He's going to tell us specifically, seek first my kingdom. I'll take care of these other things, but he wants your heart. How many times have I been saying from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of the matter is the matter and God wants your heart. Holy and completely, he wants all of you. Let's leave this morning making Christ Lord of all of us. Amen? Amen? If there's anything that we're hanging on to, we're finding some security in this, That any kind of false hopes that we have, these treasures, let's relinquish those. Say, Lord, use them as you will. Open hand policy. You put it in, you can take it out just like that. But you, Lord, are a treasure that will never, ever, ever fade. Let's pray.